Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Hey, it's good to be back. I love being with you guys. Um, and just being, being with you guys, being able to hang out, being able to worship together uh, and learn together. Um, it's something that I look forward to. And I love that uh, Tony is able to pick up um, a sermon in these last rotation a little bit. I think he was here two weeks ago, right? Because that was the plan. If he wasn't, I'd like to know about it. Um, and then just being able to give Justin a break um, and uh, be present and yet not on, on in a different kind of way, right? Uh, so this is good this morning. I'm, uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis 22. If you brought your Bible and you want uh, to be looking at it on your own, you can go right there. I love uh, this passage and what we get to look at today. I'm going to start with a little bit of a story. Uh, it starts in a rainforest. Uh, we were stuck. We had come to the edge of a 50-foot cliff and didn't know where to go, didn't know what we were going to do to get out of it. In front of us was literally a 50-foot drop, and behind us was probably a 20-foot straight-up rise. And on both sides of us, the ravine um, in this riverbed the soil was so loose that as we tried to climb up the side, we were pulling trees out. So we were just stuck. This happened my sophomore year in college. Um, I don't know if you had the opportunity. I went to a small little Christian college. And uh, freshman year, somebody introduced to me the idea of going on a mission trip for spring break. And I had never been on a mission trip before. My entire youth group experience had been... Uh, adventure trips. We went to Colorado every summer, and it was great, and it was introspective and in what God is doing in my own heart, but I had never done kind of an outward service-based trip. And so freshman year, we went to Jamaica, and I found that incredible because it was like paradise, but also like really purposeful what we were doing. Um, very, very cool trip. And then sophomore year came around, and the uh, faculty advisor who had, who had led the Jamaica trip asked if I would be a student leader for a trip that he was taking to Nevis. Tiny little island in the Caribbean, six square miles, fly into St. Kitts and then ferry across. The kids on the island had zero concept of distance. So we said we came from like thousands of miles away and they were like, how many times did you have to run around the island to do that? And it was just the idea of distance for them that was completely different than the way we think. Uh, but we spent the week um, hanging out with them, telling Bible stories, teaching the Bible to them. We got to meet adults in the church and share like life verses and get to hear their stories. Really cool and part of my forming identity in college. The last day of the trip, uh, we had a free day and just a bunch of us adventure seekers got together and were like, why don't we go and climb Mount Nevis? It's a 3,000-foot uh, kind of, the whole, I, the whole island is like a circle, and then it rises in the middle 3,000 feet, and they call it Mount Nevis. And so we just thought, let's go. We think we saw a trailhead. Um, let, we don't need a guide. We can just kind of climb up. And so we walked into the rainforest, and we started uh, climbing up because that's the direction to the top. Um, and pretty quickly realized that we were bushwhacking, the trail had disappeared, and we were just climbing up through a dense, dense rainforest. And we got, uh, after hours, we got to like a place where we could see the top, but there was a ravine, and we're like, we're done for the day. Let's just head down. 
But instead of going down through the dense rainforest like we did, why don't we follow this dry riverbed? We had seen it at the bottom. I thought there's going to be open space. It's dry. It's good. And that was awesome for the first uh, hour or so. Um, the riverbed would take little drops, and we could just you know hop down them and keep going. But the drops continued to grow in size, so that at one point, you know, it's like five feet, and we're now we're doing team building. It's like high and low ropes, right? So we're like spotting each other and like hoisting each other down and uh, doing that. We get to 15 feet, and my Colorado repelling youth group days kick in. I'm like, guys, we're going to repel on jungle vines. And we did, and it was awesome. Uh, grabbed jungle vines, and we walked backwards down this 15-foot ledge, got to the bottom, and we kept going, and then we got to 50 feet. We are like, yeah, we could repel, but we're not strapped in. So most of us will make it. <laughs> I'm not sure that's good enough. And we can't go back because we can't climb up you know, 15, 20 feet the way that we got down, and we tried to climb up the sides, and dirt is ripping out. Trees are ripping out, and we're like, what, what are we going to do? It was um, the most intense point of my life where I have felt stuck. I've never felt more physically stuck than that. Uh, hiking around in caves, crawling through like really tight spots, nothing compared to that moment on, in the rainforest of like, what are we going to do? And so two weeks ago when I preached this at Park Street, that's where I left the story, and I never came back to the end of it. And they got mad. <laughs> they got mad. So I'll let, you, like, I'll let you guys choose your own adventure. Do you want me to tell you, or do you want me to go on? I'll just say you're still alive, so you made it out. Made it out. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to know. Okay. <laughs> go on. Okay, so we ended up just creating a human ladder up the side like grabbing the big thick trees and then like being there for each other and like slipping into each other's uh, arms and like locking. We crawled up the side and then kept moving forward kind of over the edge of the cliff, but now we're on the side and we're like squeezing around the side. Um, till we got to another spot, we're like, okay, we're stuck again. Don't know what to do. Somebody took off their belt to be able to like swing people across a little ledge. Janelle fell. Um, and that ended up to not be a really bad deal. But where we finally got out, we were able to like lie down on the side of it and stick our arms out into the foliage, like the ground cover, and use that as brakes sliding down. Have you ever seen Romancing the Stone? It kind of felt like that. Um, sliding down, and we got to the riverbed, and everybody was okay. Um, and the only casualty we had was like one severely sprained foot uh, from the repelling incident, the ankle. And then we kept walking, and then we came to a marijuana fi uh, field. And a guy in his hut, and we were like, don't step on it. Walk around it, be quiet. This is not a time to joke. We're probably in more danger there than even up in the rainforest. And we walked out and walked out of the rainforest and got yelled at real bad, being dumb, stupid college students. Um, but quite the adventure. We got into the van, and one of my friends like, we need to make T-shirts. <laughs> and at that point, I was like, you need to be quiet. <laughs> we just did something real dumb. Let that sink in for a little while. I'm starting there.
because I feel like there are times in life where we just feel stuck. There are times in life where maybe it's because of our own stupid decisions, uh, like hiking up in a rainforest without a guide, or something else that we've done that has put us in a position of being stuck. Maybe something has happened to us. Maybe it's just kind of like coincidence, whether or not you believe in coincidence, that right now you just feel stuck and you don't know, you, you don't have what it takes to move forward. And you're like, what are we going to do? So we're in this series that we're calling I Am, and it's all about trying to learn more about the character and nature of God together. How does God reveal himself? And in the Bible, name means a lot. Name reveals character. And so God will actually change people's names in the course of the Bible to say, you have been known for this, I'm going to make you known for this. And there's a character change when people come in contact with God. God has a whole lot of uh, names throughout the pages of the Bible. And not like um, we worship a whole lot of gods. We worship a God who's so big that he has so many character qualities that his character can't be confined to just one name. And so we've been going through Old Testament names of God and trying then to discipline ourselves to say, this isn't just the God of the Old Testament. This is the God revealed in the Old Testament that is embodied in the Trinity. And as we know him, we can worship him more. And as we know him and worship him more, we also get to see who we are. If we're created in his image, kind of a secondary application to knowing him and worshiping him is we get to know ourselves better and who he made us to be, right? So uh, we've looked at the creator God. We've looked at the holy God. We looked at Yahweh God, the God who is uh, always, past, present, future, is and is with us. Uh, taking a look at God, our shepherd, um, Tony preached on the God who heals, and today we're going to look at the God who provides. Um, if you are in your Bible and you want to open up to Genesis 22, we're going to start there. Let's read and pray and then dive in. Genesis 22 starts, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, his son and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand that fire and the knife. And they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for, for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand 
and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who reveals yourself. That you don't hide away, that you don't make yourself uh, just a hiding mystery, but you want us to know you. You show yourself to us, and sometimes it's more than we can handle, and honestly, sometimes we don't want to know you. But I thank you for the gift. I thank you that you want to be known, that you're here now in our presence, and that we can know you this way. Help us to dig in, to see you, to worship you, and in so doing, to see a better glimpse of ourself in you. Father, thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis 22 marks the climax of Abraham's story, right? God showed up in Abraham's life in Genesis 12 when nobody knew God and nobody was following God. God shows up to Abram who later has his names changed to Abraham. And he says, I want, you to, I want you to leave. I want you to leave everything that you've known. I want you to leave your land, your hometown, your father's family, leave the people that you've grown up with, and I want you to go. I want you to leave, and I want you to go to a place that I will show you. I haven't shown you yet, but I will show you. And as you do this, I will make you into the father of many nations. And all the world will be blessed through you and through what you're doing and future generations. We have to know the story leading up to Genesis 22 if we're going to make sense of what's happening in Genesis 22. So when Abraham, when Abram and Sarai leave and they go, they don't have any kids, right? And God says, I'm going to bless you through your offspring. That means you need to have offspring. And we preached on El Roi, right? The God who sees and how Abram, uh, Abram and Sarai at the time were like, we have to get this solved. God is not just going to give us a child in the normal way that we had thought that he might. So we're going to have to get ahead of the game. And they took it into their own hands. And uh, Abram slept with one of his wife's maids. And uh, Hagar gave birth to Ishmael, right? And God says, no, 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 no. That's not how I do things, okay? 
um, not even going to thank you for your effort here. Um, this was wrong. I'm going to bless Hagar. I'm going to bless Ishmael. But my promise is coming by my means. My promise is coming in my way. And so when God, even in this text, refers to Abraham and his son, his only son, what he's referring to here is not just birth order and like a single child. He's saying the son of the promise, that Isaac would become the, the way that God fulfills his promise, the way that God provides for Abraham and then all the future generations. Abraham ran ahead of God and God said no. And then God shows up and says, you're real old, but you're going to be pregnant. And what, what is Abraham's and Sarah's response to that? Hmm? They did. They laughed. They laughed. You know that Isaac's name literally means laughter, right? And there's a part of this laughter that's like, oh, God, I don't think you know what you're doing anymore, right? I don't think you know what you're doing. But as I as I reflected on Isaac and the name laughter, I think it goes beyond just the cynicism. When a child comes into a house, laughter comes into the house, right? I'll give you an example of what this looks like in my house. This was a couple years ago. Leslie's folding laundry, and the girls are just out and about, and they think, oh, what a great idea. Let's put underwear on our head. And Leslie wants you to know they're clean, Okay, they're not like flipped inside out or whatever. And if you've done that, like no judgment. If you if you did the dirty underwear thing, that just happens, and we can laugh about it, right? When kids enter the house, laughter comes to the house, and you think about the difference from where Abraham and Sarah were before God provided children, and where they were after, and laughter seems to take on a much more joy-filled characteristic than just the initial cynicism of it. And yet, Genesis 22 happens. Laughter fills the house, and then God tells Abraham to change laughter into smoke. Like, take the very thing that you've been waiting for and sacrifice it and give it up. Now, it's interesting to note that in the Bible, this is the first place in Genesis 22 that the word love shows up. Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. That's the first uh, instance of love. That means something in the Bible. The first of anything in the Bible, there's impact there. This passage actually has three firsts, and we'll talk about that later. This is the first time that love shows up. Take your Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Now, child sacrifice in our day meets us with horror. Like, that's from some, like, barbaric, what in the world are you doing? And it is horrible, and it was horrible in Abraham's day, but it was common in Abraham's day. People followed gods who demanded child sacrifice, or at least they thought that's what was going on. And so it was not uncommon uh, to feel like in order to follow your God, in order to obey your God, you had to present a child sacrifice. This isn't something new to Abraham. This is not the first time he's encountered it. 
He likely encountered it in his father's land. He's likely seen it along the way. And so when God shows up, while it's horrible, while it's excruciating, while I, while I would guarantee that Abraham was like, I don't understand what is going on here. It's not new, and it's not completely foreign. So Abraham had waited and waited and waited and waited, and finally they had a baby boy. But the question that comes is, what was Abraham waiting for? Was he actually waiting for God, or was he waiting for what God would give, right? Was he waiting for the boy, or was he waiting for God to show up? What was he trusting in? Was he trusting in God, or was he trusting in the boy? And sometimes those can seem inseparable, but it's worth the question. Tim Keller says, no, not yet. Abraham hadn't learned to trust God alone to love God just for God and not so much as what he could get out of God. Keller writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods, that Abraham had turned Isaac into an idol. And now rather than trusting God, he was trusting in Isaac. Rather than having his hope in God, he had put his hope in Isaac. And that's a dangerous place to be in. From this perspective then, God's actually acting for Abraham's benefit in requiring, in asking for this unbelievably painful thing. Because as long as Abraham never had to choose between his son and obedience to God, he wouldn't see that his son was becoming idolatrous. In a similar way, we may not realize how many idols we have in our own life until we get to a place where we have to choose between following God and having that idol that we love. This doesn't mean that those things are bad. It just means that those things or people or jobs or anything good is not sufficient to take the spot of God in our life. If we're not really willing to risk hurting our career, or doing things that don't make sense in order to do God's will, those things become counterfeit gods to us. We make counterfeit gods out of jobs, out of relationships. I remember this. Um, Leslie and I have a good friend who started uh, to date and get involved in a relationship, a romantic relationship with a guy who did not know God and wasn't really interested in searching him out. And as the relationship progressed and they got closer and closer and closer, super good guy, and yet didn't love Jesus. That wasn't at the center of his life. That was not going to be at the center of their relationship. And when they got engaged, Leslie just point blank asked her, are you choosing him over God? And she said, yeah. Yeah, I guess I am. And that's a dangerous spot to be in. It's a really dangerous spot to be in. Is someone or somebody, is someone or something other than God shifting into the center of your life? And if that's happening, I don't want you to feel shame. I don't want you to feel guilt. I want you to feel a wake-up call. I want you to feel a warning. And I want you to feel an invitation 
to something, to, a, to God who is actually able to take that spot in your life. With Abraham, God wasn't saying you can't love somebody, but that you can't turn that person into God. So Abraham has a choice. And we're told that it seems like he makes that choice pretty quickly, right? God shows up, and it says in the morning, he began getting the supplies ready. So Abraham has a night to dread this, and in the morning, he gets up, and he has a quick obedience to God. So could that be said of us? Could that be said of you? God shows up and you feel like you hear from him. You feel like you get clear direction from him. Is your response quick to him? I will follow you, but I'm going to take three months to like drag my, uh, my feet in this. Or I'm going to wake up and the next day I'm going to get at it. And there's more. Because God doesn't say, build the altar in your front yard, right? He says, I'm, I want you to take a three days journey to this mountain. So Abraham has a quick response, but he also has an enduring response. For three days, he knows what's coming. For three days, the Bible actually says Isaac was dead to him because he knew what was coming. Father and son take a three day journey of enduring obedience. The other thing that's happening here is that uh, Isaac, when it says the boy, it doesn't mean like little squirt, right? I, I have, for most of my life, read this passage and thought of Isaac as a five-year-old. Isaac is more like 18 to 30, somewhere in there. Uh, scholars are looking at the timeline and saying, Isaac is a grown guy. He's not a little kid. He's not oblivious to what is happening. He's asking real questions that Abraham could put the wood on his back like he's strong and he can go, which adds to this because Abraham at 99 or whatever he is at this point probably can't overpower his full-grown son. So Isaac has to be willing to be tied up. Isaac has to be willing to get up on the altar, which is an incredible picture to me of what is going on here. They do this together, and uh, this three-day journey is a quick obedience and an enduring obedience. And um, Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 says, By faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, though uh, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So this is pretty credible, incredible. Abraham believes in the resurrection, right? For three days, Isaac is dead to him. He thinks he's going to go through, and yet he believes, if God has me go through with it, he's able to raise him from the dead. It's pretty... Uh, it's. It's pretty incredible, I think, in Genesis 22 when Abraham talks to his servants and he says, you stay here, we're going to go and worship, and who's going to come back? He says, we're going to come back. That doesn't mean I don't think I'm going to go through with it. That doesn't mean I don't think it's just actually not going to happen. That means whatever happens, we're coming back together. 
God is going to show up. God is going to do something incredible. God will provide, Abraham says to Isaac. Where is, where is the lamb? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide. And Abraham uh, ties Isaac up. He's up on the altar, and he reaches out his hand, and that's where God reveals his character as different from the other gods surrounding. And he says, stop, 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 stop. I want you to know that this is not what I'm about. I want you to know that I'm different. And he says, now I know that you haven't withheld anything from me. Now I know what our relationship is like. Now I know that you have taken Isaac off the altar as an idol, that you're no longer worshiping him and that you're worshiping me and we're good and we can move together and I am different. I am different from the surrounding gods. Abraham says, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. God says, don't do it. Don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now I have this new knowledge. And God is saying, he's like, now we're in a new place in our relationship. Abraham looks and notices the ram caught by its horns and he sacrifices it in Isaac's place. And then he names the place the Lord will provide. is Jehovah Jireh. Yahweh, the Lord, the, the ever-present God who is with us, provides. Jehovah Jireh, or Yahweh Jireh, however you uh, want to go with that. The Lord will provide. Now, two things to note here. Abraham experiences God's blessing through obedience, right? This is also the first time obedience is brought up in the Bible, used by that name. Obedience shows up, right? And love shows up in the Bible, but it's never, uh, this is the first time those words are used. And it's also, so the three words that show up for the first time, love and worship and obedience. And there's something really powerful about that combination. That if you try and separate love or worship or obedience, you don't really end up with any of those. Abraham trusts God enough to follow him even when it's hard. But do we have that kind of obedience? Do we have that kind of obedience that we will trust God, that we will worship God, that we will love God, that we will obey God even when it's hard? We follow him even when it's hard. Are we willing to give up our whole life, our whole heart to follow him? Every room in our heart, every part of who we are, we say, I will open that up to God so that nothing occupies the center of our heart and life but God alone. Is there anything that you need to do today to follow God like this? You need to place anything on the altar and declare, God, I will not let this come between you and me. Or maybe I have been letting this come between you and me, but today is the day that that ends. A relationship that's out of place, a habit that you maybe even enjoy, maybe it's even a healthy habit, but you've, it's, it's consumed you. And say, this has got to take a step back. Something about your very identity or personality that you cling to even more than your identity in God. This is just who I am. And you defend it when 
Maybe you need to let God work through that. A career. Follow God with your whole heart. The second thing is God shows himself to be faithful. God is a God who provides. Know that you can trust that God will provide. It doesn't always come the way we expect it. It doesn't always come the way that we're asking for it. But God sees what we need, just like the verses that were read earlier in worship. God sees what we need, and he loves us, and he takes care of us. And you can know that about God. You can know that about who God is. But then there's something even more in Genesis 22. If you look through it a little bit different lens, something else appears. In verse 14, Abraham names the place the Lord will provide, which is kind of odd if he was just naming it for that time. Like the Lord provides or the Lord provided would seem to make more sense. And yet Abraham says the Lord will provide that Abraham sees something else going on here. And I think absolutely. I think he sees the trajectory of God, that he sees that God is a God who will continue to provide, but I think he sees something even more. So if you look at the conversation that Jesus has in John 8 when the Pharisees, with the Pharisees, he says, I'll tell you the truth, Abraham looked forward to my day. He saw it and was glad. I don't know that that's just poetic. I think Jesus is saying Abraham actually got a glimpse of what God was doing and God would be doing with his own son. Maybe as Abraham was following God in this agonizing test, God gave him a flash forward to something that was coming. Because a couple thousand years later, a father and son go on their own three-day journey, right? The wood is laid on the son's back and he climbs up the hill, and he climbs up on the altar by choice, not forced. And he sacrifices his own life. Only this time, the father doesn't withhold the death blow. He goes through with it. Because he's the Lord who provides, because he's the Lord who will provide, and in sacrificing his own son, in not withholding his own son, he makes a way that we can be with him again. God was not. He wouldn't withhold even Jesus. And so here, here in Genesis 22, we get a glimpse of what is coming, what is forecasted. Through Jesus' death, a life with God was provided, is provided, and will be provided. God provides a lamb and our sins are taken away. Isaiah 53, 5 says, by his wounds, we are healed. And he doesn't just provide once, right? The Holy Spirit provides day after day after day after day as he leads us and guides us and protects us and heals us. He reminds us of truth when we're faced with lies. He reminds us of our identity as God's children He empowers us to live the life that God has called us to. So maybe you feel stuck today. Maybe you feel like the rainforest thing is a metaphor for your own life. Like, I I don't know which way to go. 
and the trail that you've been on has led you to a place of just feeling stuck. Do you know the Lord who provides? Are you living for Him? Are you living in Him and with Him? And I would, I would push you to ask and answer the question, how has He already provided? If you feel stuck, maybe it's worth going back. Maybe it's worth asking, how has He already provided? And not just focusing on what you think you need right now and how that provision isn't yet realized. How has He already provided? And how can you give Him more of who you are? The Lord who provided the Lamb for Abraham and Isaac is the Lord who provides the Lamb for our sins. And that that should make us never doubt His love, never doubt His affection for us. I want to close by reading Romans 8, 31 through 39. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The God who would not allow child sacrifice, the God who stopped Abraham from offering his only son, is the God who loved us so much that he offered his only son. And now, nothing is able to separate us from him. He provided the ram so that Isaac could live, and he provides his only son, the Lamb of God, so that everyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God provides. May we know him and trust him and follow him and love him and worship him and obey him, the Lord who provides. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your character. I thank you for a glimpse of your love for us, of your self-sacrificing nature that shows us what it is to love, that shows us what it is to give. I thank you for the way that you provide for us, that you look on us, that you see us, that you see us with great affection and you provide. Sometimes we do what Abraham and Sarah did in running ahead of your plans and trying to provide for ourselves and it does not go the way we want it to. 
I pray that you would give us the trust to see you as provider and to wait for you to celebrate the ways that you have already provided and wait and expect for your provision in the days and months and years to come. God, if there's anybody right now in this room who is feeling like they can identify idols in their life and counterfeit gods that are getting in the way of you and them. I pray that you'd give them the courage to identify it. Give them the courage to set it aside. To be able to not just deal with that in isolation, but to open up to community and talk about it and be vulnerable. Give them the courage to set that aside so that they can live in you more fully. For those who right now who feel paralyzed and stuck, would you give them a vision of the way you have already provided? And would you remind them that they can hold on to you who will continue to provide? May we find our life in you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.